This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker. And tonight I'm joined by economist and podcast host, James Meadway. We're going to talk about the major Israeli incursion into the West Bank, the latest um, from the upcoming COP28 meeting. We haven't talked so much about that as we usually would, obviously, because of the Gaza war. Um, we'll also um, talk about the, the crazy freakout that many people on the right are having against Owen Jones for doing basic journalism. First story. It's the sixth day of relative peace for Palestinians in Gaza as the agreement pausing hostilities between Israel and Hamas continues to hold. But in the occupied West Bank, it's a different story. Last night, Israeli forces began a major assault on the Jenin refugee camp, one that went on for 12 hours. And this morning, they killed two children. Now, this disturbing video captures the moment nine-year-old Adam Al-Ghul was shot dead. The boy appears to be running from the IDF when he's shot in the back. He's left to lie in the road while bullets continue to fly around him and he's, he's then pulled out of the line of fire by his friend, leaving a trail of blood on the road. As you say, very distressing footage. Also killed by the IDF was 15-year-old Basil Abu al-Wafa. During the raid, the IDF reportedly blocked off the three major hospitals in the camp. Médecins Sans Frontières surgeon Christos Christou posted this on social media from Jenin. It has been already two and a half hours that we are trapped in our hospital here in Jenin while the Israeli forces are operating in an other incursion in Jenin camp. There is no way for any of the injured patients uh, to reach the hospital and there's no way for us to reach these people. There's nothing worse for a doctor to know that there are people there needing our care and they cannot get it. The Palestinian Red Crescent has also claimed that Israeli troops interfered in its ambulance operations. Posting this video today, the PCRS says it shows Israeli armoured vehicles and troops obstructing ambulances as they attempted to reach a besieged neighbourhood in Janine. While Israeli forces have raided Janine almost every night since October the 7th, Palestinians have reported that the scale of the damage inflicted by this incursion is much greater than they're used to. Hundreds of troops are reported to have stormed homes, forcing families to leave at gunpoint. Meanwhile, the IDF shelled houses and other buildings, while bulldozers ripped up roads and infrastructure. Janine has long been a centre of Palestinian resistance to Israeli occupation, and since October 7th, there have been a number of assaults on the camp, with 14 Palestinians killed earlier this month. Five more Palestinians were killed earlier this week in a separate raid, According to the IDF, last night's operation was aimed at killing Palestinian militants, and they posted this earlier today. In a joint operation by the IDF, the Shin Bet and the MGB and the Janine refugee camp, two senior terrorists were eliminated by the IDF fighters, including Camp Commander Mohammed Zabedi, who carried out shooting attacks in the sector and was involved in sending terrorists to the attacks. The IDF also acknowledged that two more people were killed amid clashes in the area, that's what they said. Presumably the two children already mentioned. Of course, in all these situations, the IDF presents their raids as targeted military operations. But some Israeli politicians have been more clear about their view of the West Bank. Earlier this week, Israel's finance minister Bezalel Smotrich claimed there are two million Nazis in the West Bank. That's according to the Times of Israel. Now, for reference, the entire Palestinian population of the West Bank is thought to be about three million. It might seem strange or a strange time to be ramping up this kind of rhetoric, with talks currently ongoing to extend the Gazan truce for a further two days. But many on Israel's political right think any pause in the fighting is a mistake. That's despite the fact that air strikes likely endanger Israeli hostages held in Gaza. Hamas has today claimed that Israeli bombardment has killed the youngest hostage held in Gaza, 10-month-old Kafir Bibas. Also dead say Hamas are his older brother and mother. The IDF is still trying to verify the claim, but posted this statement on Twitter. The Bibas family, including 10-month-old Kafir, 4-year-old Ariel, their mother Shiri, were abducted by Hamas on October 7th. Hamas must be held accountable. Hamas must release all hostages immediately. On the question of an extension to the truce, The Guardian reports that Egyptian sources say negotiations are going well, and international figures who refuse to call for a permanent ceasefire beforehand, now seem to be changing their tune. US President Joe Biden has posted this 
on social media. Hamas unleashed a terrorist attack because they fear nothing more than Israelis and Palestinians living side by side in peace. To continue down the path of terror, violence, killing and war is to give Hamas what they seek. We can't do that. Now, of course, previously, Biden had said that a ceasefire would only benefit Hamas. Now, though, he seems to be saying that not having a ceasefire would only benefit Hamas. Now, of course, he still doesn't use the actual word ceasefire. So what's going on here? It could be that the 15,000 killed inside Gaza have finally changed his mind. Or it could be more a question of political convenience. The New York Times has reported this. As Congress weighs aid to Israel, some Democrats want strings attached. Now, the context here, um, Biden's $14.3 billion additional military funding for Israel is currently working its way through Congress. And in a break with the past, Democrats are clashing with the administration over attaching conditions to the package, with many demanding measures to avoid civilian deaths. Now, it's important to emphasize how unusual this is, with Congress having essentially rubber-stamped decades' worth of military funding to Israel with few or no conditions. But Biden's apparent change of heart also comes at a time when he is heading into an election, while appearing to be losing the voters he's going to need the most. Earlier this week, the New Republic reported this. A series of polls have shown that Biden's defense of Israel's war conduct is a key factor behind his declining poll numbers, particularly among younger voters whose support proved crucial for his 2020 victory over Trump. That year, 65% of Gen Z voters supported Biden, which was 11% more than any other age group. And turnout among Gen Z and young millennials was crucial. Between 53 and 55% of registered 18 to 29-year-olds voted in 2020, according to the New Policy Institute, Simon Rosenberg, who told CNBC that this may be the highest ever recorded in the modern era of politics. The article goes on to say this, this cohort has a dramatically different view of Israel than older age groups. According to a 2022 survey by Pew Research Center, 58% of people aged 18 to 29 have an unfavorable view of Israel versus 28% of Americans older than 65, a divergence that has only become sharper in the past few weeks. An NBC News poll released on Sunday found that between September and November, Biden's approval ratings among voters aged 18 to 34 fell from 46 to 31%. It's no mystery why, they say. A stunning 70% of voters in this age group disapprove of his handling of the war in Gaza. This poll is a stunner, and it's stunning because of the impact the Israel-Hamas war is having on Biden. That's Bill McInturf of Public Opinion Strategies, and that's what he told NBC. Now, apparently it gets even worse for Biden with New Republic reporting this. Young voters tend to be loyal not to a party or candidate, but to their preferred policy objectives, often voting on a single issue. They didn't vote for Biden in 2020. They voted against Trump, more specifically his policy agenda. They weren't excited about Biden, but their lack of enthusiasm enthusiasm about him as a person didn't really dissuade the generation from coming out and voting for Democrats, pollster John De La Volpe of Harvard University told The Atlantic. If these voters' sentiments towards Biden turn negative from neutral as a result of his stance on Gaza, a considerable amount of the Trump repellent effect may be neutralized, resulting in a considerable portion of young voters either supporting a third-party candidate or sitting the election out. Faced with two candidates whose agenda they oppose, many Gen Zers will simply stay home. It's not just Gen Z and millennials that Biden risks losing, though. 68% of all U.S. voters support a ceasefire in Israel, with only 28% in favor of sending additional military aid to the country. James, it does seem, I mean, we've said this from sort of the moment the the ceasefire was was called, it does seem like it's going to be difficult for Israel to sort of start a bombing campaign Mm -hmm. on the same level that they were before. And I mean, especially sort of there's the hostages, the impact of the hostages. If, yeah. if if people in Israel have seen some hostages come home, but not all of them, if you're a family member of one of them who hasn't come home, then you're going to say, well, this deal seems to be working. Let's continue it. Yeah. And then you've also got the question of, of the United States, Joe Biden potentially under even more pressure than Keir Starmer mm-hmm. because Keir Starmer is heading towards a majority. Biden is in a sort of wafer um, thin margin um, battle with, with, with Donald yeah. Trump. And this kind of thing could swing it. 
Yeah, that's what one of the domestic considerations. I mean, I think generally for America's attitude, you have to put this into the context of what, what the US has been trying to do really since Obama got elected. There's been a continuity across presidents here, which is try and pivot out of the Middle East so they can go and concentrate on what they call the Indo-Pacific. But really, this is about China. They've been dragged back into this uh, and, and they don't particularly want to be there. And this is a mess as, as far as the, the US administration is concerned. They can't back down on supporting Israel, as we've discovered over the last uh, few weeks or so. But the pressure is really building up. This is not a situation they want to be in. Their, their plan for the Middle East, which was broadly speaking to neutralize uh, the situation as far as possible, get deals signed between the different Middle Eastern Arab states and uh, Israel, the Abraham Accords, so-called, that's all being blown out of the water by all of this. So they're in a very, very difficult position from their own sort of narrow political conception of this. And of course, the humanitarian crisis is absolutely overwhelming and, and global public opinion matches that in America, but is even more opposed, of course, to the Israeli bombing campaign. So that's the mess they got themselves into. There are some relatively quick ways out of it, but it does involve a real recalibration of how the US uh, conducts itself in the world. Let's go to our next story. The UN's climate change conference, COP28, is set to kick off in Dubai tomorrow. It's being hosted by the United Arab Emirates, a country that has some of the largest oil reserves on the planet. And its president this year is this man, Ahmed Al-Jaber. Now, he's seen by many as a controversial appointment to lead the world's biggest climate conference. That's because he's repeatedly stressed the importance of fossil fuels in the green transition. And this is probably no surprise, given he's also the boss of the Emirates state energy giant, Adnoc. That's the 12th largest oil company on earth. As host of COP28, the Emirates has positioned itself as taking a key role in speeding up the world's transition away from oil, gas and coal. And as president of the meeting, Al Jaber has had considerable access to foreign leaders in the run-up to COP28. But leaked documents now suggest that rather than trying to forge an agreement to drive down fossil fuel use, the Emirates have been using pre-conference meetings as a lobby shop. The leaked papers reveal that the Emirates briefed its COP28 president to use the climate conference to secretly push for new oil and gas deals with at least 15 foreign powers. That's according to the Centre for Climate Reporting. The 50-page file was made public by a whistleblower, and it consists of briefing notes for Al Jaber's meeting with officials from other countries. In September, Al Jaber attended a UN Assembly meeting in New York as part of the COP28 delegation. The Centre for Climate Reporting reveals this about how he was briefed ahead of some of those meetings. Under a section labelled ADNOC, so that's the oil company, Al Jaber's briefing for a meeting with two French government ministers stated, quote, the UAE remains committed to supporting France in a responsible and reliable manner through hydrocarbon business, LNG, so that's liquefied natural gas growth, which is key to the energy transition, a large-scale and a large-scale deployment of renewables. A briefing for a meeting with UK government minister Graham Stewart highlighted investment by UK-based oil majors Shell and BP in ADNOC entities. Quote, we need to ensure that correct regulatory and support mechanisms remain in place to realise our joint ambition, the briefing stated. The French and the UK government say commercial deals were not discussed at the UN Assembly. On another occasion, there was a separate pre-COP28 meeting between Al Jaber and China, with the Centre for Climate Reporting reporting this. A briefing prepared ahead of Al Jaber's meeting during pre-COP with China's Ministry of Ecology and Environment, Zhao Yingmin, stated ADNOC has a strategic partnership with the country, with sales and trading worth $15 billion in the past year. It remains a committed energy partner to China. And the briefing raised the possibility of partnering on more international gas projects. Now, those other international projects included possible deals in Mozambique, Canada and Australia. And according to the Centre for Climate Reporting, the Chinese government hasn't responded to a request for comment. So they're, they're keeping their lips tight on this one. Other meetings where Al Jaber was briefed on commercial talking points seem to have yielded results with the CCR reporting this in a meeting Al Jaber held with Brazil's Minister of the Environment and Climate Change, Marina Silva. Algebra appears to have planned to lobby to push through Adnoc's bid for a Brazilian petrochemicals company called Bra Braskem. Securing alignment and endorsement for the deal at the highest level is important for us, the briefing stated. It also included an ask, Silver's support in facilitating a call with the appropriate minister. 
earlier this month, Adnock presented a new offer to become the majority stakeholder in Braskem, according to a report by Reuters. The government of Brazil also failed to respond to the CCR's request for comment. The United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change sets the standards of conduct for COP presidents, standards that Al Jaber seems to have breached. A representative for the UNFCCC told the BBC this, COP presidents are expected to act without bias, prejudice, favoritism, caprice, self-interest, preference or deference, strictly based on sound, independent and fair judgment. They are also expected to ensure that personal views and convictions do not compromise or appear to compromise their role and functions as a UNFCCC officer. Former UNFCCC head and architect of the 2015 Paris Agreement, Christiana Figueres, said this in response to the allegations. This is the Volkswagen 2015 moment for the COP28 presidency. Caught red-handed, the COP presidency has no other option but to now unequivocally step up the transparency, responsibility and accountability with which they lead the process. This COP presidency will be under public scrutiny like no other ever before. This is a deep challenge and a transformational opportunity for them. The planet cannot afford for them to not step up. Um, In terms of Volkswagen, Figueres is referring there to the 2015 scandal that revealed that Volkswagen had been cheating on the emissions tests required for its vehicles, allowing it to sell diesel vehicles as low emission. In response, two questions from the BBC, the Emirates COP28 team didn't deny using COP meetings for business talks, saying that, quote, private meetings are private. It declined to comment on what was what, dis- what was discussed in the meetings, but told the BBC this. The fact that Dr. Sultan Al-Jaber holds a number of positions alongside his COP28 president-designate is his role as COP28 president-designate is public knowledge and something we have been transparent about from the outset. Dr. Sultan Al-Jaber is singularly focused on the business of COP and delivering ambitious and transformational climate outcomes at COP28. It's not just big oil lobbying for new deals behind the scenes at the COP28 conference. Big Meat. Now, you might have, it sounds like a different kind of video, doesn't it? But Big Meat is getting in on the action too. Leaked documents show that the meat industry plans to use the conference to argue that meat production is sustainable and even beneficial to the environment. That's reported by The Guardian. The documents seen by D. Smog and The Guardian were produced by the Global Meat Alliance. They furnish industry players and delegates with talking points and arguments in favour of increasing meat and dairy production. And The Guardian reports this. In a four-page set of arguments, the Global Meat Alliance claims that producers can play a key role in environmentally sustainable food systems and that the sector is continuously driving towards carbon-friendly farming. Several of these arguments reference the idea that grazing livestock can help maintain healthy soils which can store carbon. This is often described as regenerative agriculture. It is a favoured line with many food companies, despite the fact that scientists have said that soils are not a reliable way to store carbon in the long term and that removal can be easily undone. I mean, you've also got the issue of, you know, what should be there instead? If you've got a forest, that's also going to be pretty decent at keeping the soil well, isn't it? In its messaging, the industry also heavily references the role of meat in relieving hunger in the global south, claiming it plays a key role in reducing food insecurity and malnutrition. However, the UN-linked Committee on World Food Security has repeatedly pointed out that hunger and malnutrition are not caused by a lack of food, pointing instead to problems with access, distribution and power. The cynicism, cynicism here is, is it's quite striking. I mean, he was there from the start. As soon as they said that this guy, Head or Adnock, uh, was also going to be somehow president of the process by which the entire planet is uh, meant to be collectively uh, decarbonizing, it was already there was a degree of cynicism built into the thing. And lo and behold, here's the not quite inevitable result, but it's not greatly surprising that you end up with like this. It's not also cynicism that appears when you realize just how many oil, gas, fossil fuel company lobbyists will be turning up to COP. I mean, it's a vast gathering now. And critically important, by the way, not just because of climate change, but if you look at you know, the, the failure of the World Trade Organization over many years to provide any kind of forum for a multilateral discussion, uh, the fact that you have on most issues in the world today, various of the great powers uh, banging their heads against each other. COP represents one of the few places where it's almost a functioning sort of multilateral system. So it's not just important for the climate, 
overwhelming importance as that is, it's part of like how the, the world economy gets organized in any sort of multilateral setting at all. So it's kind of crucial that the process looks like it might produce a result out the other side. Now, the optimistic version of this, and you, you were reading the, the tweets from a, a commentator, a former president, I think, earlier, um, saying, well, now there's a chance for more transparency. And actually, this is very, very well timed on the Eden Summit to try and sort of discipline uh, the president in particular to be seen to not be obvious lobbying for oil and gas interests in general, Adnox interests in particular. So potentially there's something there. But the whole kind of COP process is such a sort of mishmash of different conflicting interests, such a vast number of different uh, voices coming in there, some of which, of course, you want to hear the voices of indigenous people of the small island states of the environmental protesters. And some of them you do wonder what on earth they're doing there, which is the lobbyists and the various oil and gas companies. It's a complete mishmash of things. It's always fairly chaotic getting to any sort of agreement out the other side. And frankly, as things stand, it's not producing results. The underlying fact of this is that there is no compatibility between expanding or even continuing fossil fuel extraction and meeting those uh, climate targets and attempting to restrain the damage that is now bearing down this. It just isn't compatible at all. There isn't some future where these two things can exist together. So all the sort of fine words and messing around about helping the transition by switching to gas and all the rest of it is complete nonsense. Uh, it's nonsense to have uh, a president of an oil company running the COP process because it's building in that pretense that actually these things can sit together and they just can't. When it comes to sort of climate, I'm I'm quite in the green growth camp. You know, uh, when people say the whole world can consume less, you know, I, I think probably people in Britain can consume a bit less. I mean, you know, lots of people should be consuming more in Britain, but I mean, there are many richer people in Britain who could be consuming less. I think as that could be said about many countries in the global north. In general, I think you know it, it would be good if global output keeps on increasing because there's a lot of growth to be had um, in, in many parts of the world. And I, I want consumption to increase in many parts of the world, right? And you know, probably the majority of the world. Now, the oil issue for me is you know, less contentious, right? It does seem that there is a way that countries can have growth whereby they don't rely on oil. The meat issue... I actually think it's a little bit more complicated. Now, I say this, I, I have a bias here because I, I, I have IBS and it's quite difficult for me to eat vegan pulses. And um, regular viewers might know this already. So chickpeas, you know, lentils, the kind of things that a vegan might get their protein from, I struggle with. So I, I, I eat a fair amount of meat. Um, and I, I feel like if I'm eating a fair amount of meat, I can't say that, you know, the people of India and sub-Saharan Africa should should not have the same opportunity. Um, and it does seem to me that it's difficult to have green meat. You know, I think green growth is possible with the right policy decisions. Green meat, um, you know, doesn't seem particularly likely. Where do you stand on this? Let's not kid ourselves that it's going to be uh, super easy to, to switch out of fossil fuels. It is one of the relatively easier things we, we can do on the way here. But take, for instance, the, the, the prospect of switching into electric vehicles, that if you transfer from internal combustion engines into everybody's now got a, a shiny new electric vehicle instead, the implication is that this is First of all, you're going to have to generate an awful lot more electricity to make those things work. So you're going to have to install a lot more wind farms and all the rest of it. Technically, that is feasible. But also, just to get those cars and vans and all the rest of it running, you're going to need huge amounts of lithium for the batteries. You're going to need copper uh, for all the wiring that's now being used. These are incredibly large resource demands that you're now placing on the planet to the point where actually the usual calculation is that, look, you couldn't, there isn't enough copper in the pla on the planet to be able to literally just switch everyone into having an electric vehicle to take all the cars uh, that we got now and add a few more on top. It's not going to happen. So one way or the other, we are going to have to think about consuming differently. So in terms of transport, for instance, an awful lot more public transport use rather than just private cars all the time would be a sensible part of that. Once you put it this way, the problem of meat consumption and giving people a decent standard of living starts to in there. And look, my sympathy is with you in this one. You can't really sit here in the developed world and say, well, we've had it pretty good uh, for 200 years. I mean, give or take, let's face it, most people haven't really had it that great. But broadly speaking, we had growth and a better standard of living and we get to eat meat. And sorry, everybody else, I'm afraid you're not going to be able to do that because kind of we messed it up. It doesn't work. If there's any sense of global justice here, you're going to have to allow, have to allow for growth continuing in major parts of the world to ensure that people in those parts of the world who don't currently enjoy the same kind of standard of living that's typical in the global north, you do want that to happen. You do want to see that growth happen. I think most people who support some version of degrowth would argue exactly uh, that kind of case. On the technicalities of this, there are all sorts of problems, not just climate change associated with intensive farming. I mean, one of them, of course, is, is the risk of zoonosis, of the transfer 
the rapid transfer of various animal diseases into the human population, uh, which is the way that you know usually uh, new diseases uh, actually occur in the human population. There's a very, very close association with intensive farming and that kind of uh, process happening. And that's a risk for us, separate really from climate change, although climate change makes it worse. But nonetheless, the risk of an, a further pandemic or outbreaks and pandemics are increased because of intensive farming. So there's a whole stack of issues uh, involved here, none of which are particularly easy to solve. I do like the idea and I do think we probably will all have to get used to the idea of lab-grown meat and not using these very intensive, often really quite cruel ways of treating animals to deliver the meat that, that people want to eat. But that's really, I mean, we're approaching viability and perhaps if Aaron Bastani was sitting where I'm sitting, he'd be able to give you chapter and verse and how close it is to any of this being done. But in the meantime, we do need to think of a better way of reconciling those conflicting demands for resources. And some of that is going to involve changes in how we live our lives. Some people in the comments are pointing out that at the moment, lab-grown meat is actually more energy intensive than yeah, non-lab-grown exactly. meats or naturally grown meat, one might call it. Um, but I suppose the, the argument would be that maybe if they make it more efficient, then you can get yep. somewhere down the line and then it becomes more efficient, hopefully. There might also, though, be another solution. Tweeting on the hashtag Navarro Live, Tommy P says, lab-grown meat isn't really the future. Protein from precision fermentation is where we need to go. George Monbiot has one of the best discussions I've seen about this in his book, Regenesis, which I haven't read, but um, protein from precision fermentation sounds very interesting to me. Next story. Israel's war on Gaza has left over 14,000 people dead. Almost 6,000 of them are children. Israel has also bombed and raided hospitals and UN schools. And according to the UN, 60% of housing in Gaza has been damaged or destroyed. The carnage can be seen most clearly in Gaza City. That's the largest city in the whole of the occupied Palestinian territories. According to Anshel Pfeffer in Haaretz, it could be uninhabitable for years. Now, inevitably, this kind of assault on human lives and livelihoods comes with a cost in terms of PR. People don't generally approve of killing children, bombing hospitals and destroying cities. But the Israelis had a strategy. Get the world to focus on the atrocities committed by Hamas on October the 7th and then characterize Israel's actions not as a choice, but as an inevitable response to those atrocities. Now, part of the strategy involved making some wild claims which couldn't be backed up. Now, the most infamous among these was a claim about 40 beheaded babies, which was used to paint Hamas as a new version of ISIS. Now, that claim was never backed up and is almost certainly false. Another strategy Israel employed was to show a 43-minute film of Hamas atrocities to selected journalists. The film, which uses footage from Hamas body cam, CCTV and body cams from first responders, is spliced together by the IDF and their intentions were made clear as to why they were doing this. This is from a BBC report from the 23rd of October. The decision to screen the raw footage for journalists reflected an apparent frustration among senior ranks of the Israeli military that the media coverage of Hamas's brutal attack on the 7th of October had given way to coverage of Israel's airstrikes against Gaza and the humanitarian crisis created by Israel's order for Gazans to migrate south. On their Hebrew Twitter account, the IDF were even more explicit. On November the 9th, they said, quote, the screening of the film is intended to legitimize the activities of the IDF. Many high-profile journalists granted the IDF their wishes. This was Douglas Murray speaking on the 8th of November on Talk TV. The thing that stri struck me, you know, Piers, about seeing the 7th of October footage was that um, uh, even the Nazis were actually ashamed of what they did. You know, SS battalions who spent their days shooting Jews in the back of the head and pushing them into, tr uh, into trenches had to get very, very drunk in the evening to uh, uh, forget what they had done. Uh, the Nazi high command famously had to sort of get around the problem of soldier morale because the soldiers knew this wasn't exactly what their lives were meant to look like either. I tell you one very big difference. If you look at the footage, the raw footage, and I really hope people don't on a wider scale have to view what I viewed the other day, um, if they see it, they will see something that is at least as barbaric as what the Nazis did. But here's the difference. They did it with glee. They were deeply proud. You see people um, uh, trying to, you know, taking the head off a young Israeli man with a shovel and then uh, calling their parents back in Gaza and telling them 
father, father, I've killed two Jews, with my, ten, ten Jews with my own hands, get mother on the phone, I want to show, tell her how great a job her son has done. You know, I, I come back to this thing, I'm not exaggerating with this, it's very, very interesting and people need to realise you had this situation with uh, with the Nazis where they also were a genocidal anti-Semitic organization, but they tried to cover their crimes up. Hamas actually proud of them. So you saw that Douglas Murray thinks he's done us all a service by being brave enough to watch this footage assembled by the IDF. And while the rest of us can't watch it, in fact, we're lucky we can't watch it, we should take Douglas Murray's word for it. Hamas are worse than the Nazis, he says. And Israel's bombardment of Gaza is therefore wholly justified, just like it was justified to bomb Germany until we could completely um, take out the Nazi government and refashion society from the bottom up. The Israelis have the right to do the same in Gaza. Now, it's a smart tactic from the IDF because all you need is a journalist sympathetic to your cause. They can watch the footage. They can then tell their audience it's worse than anything anyone could possibly imagine. And then the imaginations of their audience can run wild. It's cynical and it's clever, right? And people like Douglas Murray are more than happy to go along with it. And last week, myself and Owen Jones went to watch the film. Now, in case you're wondering how we got that invite, Owen was asked to come by an old Israeli friend of his and I tagged along. And Owen has now made a YouTube video about the experience. For me, the worst moment was two little boys and their dad running in their pants to a shelter and then a Hamas gunman throwing in a grenade. Their father is killed. They are injured. You see them traumatized. You see them sobbing, asking why they're still alive. And then a Hamas gunman callously takes a bottle of Coke from the fridge in front of them while they sob and wail. Hideous to watch and will stay with me for the rest of my life. No question about that. You see terrified partygoers hiding in some sort of container and then many grievously injured and presumably killed after a grenade is thrown in. A group of unarmed soldiers, female soldiers, are shot dead while hiding in barracks, uh, even if they're soldiers, as the Geneva Conventions states, killing or wounding a combatant who, having laid down his arms or having no longer means of defence, has surrendered at discretion, is a war crime. As I've said, Hamas, I keep saying, committed terrible crimes. Some high-profile claims are not substantiated by this footage. We were told that there was large-scale beheading, including the beheading of 40 babies. Now, in the footage we see, a dead soldier is beheaded, grim enough. I looked away, couldn't watch that. But not the same as beheading as a form of execution. The other, obviously, deeply unpleasant exception is an unsuccessful attempt to behead a dying Thai migrant worker with a garden implement. Again, hideous to watch. If living people were beheaded, Otherwise, we are not shown that in any of the video footage. If there was torture too, there's no evidence given for it on camera. We don't see children being killed. Hamas don't kill those poor, those two poor little boys, for example, certainly not on camera. And I imagine we would have been told if they had been killed. Now, I am aware of someone at the screening who claims we did see children being killed. Um, this surprised me because the one thing I would definitely remember is the killing of a child. So when I asked them, they said there was footage of Hamas terrorists screaming at a young girl of around 10 years old. She was hiding under a cupboard or perhaps a table and then they shot her. That wasn't my recollection. I asked Michael Walker, he couldn't recall that either. So I messaged a US journalist who watched the same screening across the Atlantic and they said they couldn't recall this either. That beforehand, the IDF spokesperson explicitly said they would not see children being murdered. And then adds that there was a scene where someone hides under um, in a room and is found. It's not clear how old they were or whether they died because there's a lot of shadow and it's hard to work out what's happening. That's how they recollected it. So that's just a small part of a 25-minute film. So Owen goes into to quite a lot of detail about the experience, what he saw, what he thinks the film was intended to do, why that shouldn't justify whatever is going on in, in Gaza, what Israel are doing to Gaza. And throughout the film, Owen is very clear that just because something wasn't shown in the IDF screening, it doesn't mean it didn't happen, right? He's not saying, oh, I didn't see this in the film, so therefore it didn't happen. He's also clear that what was in the film did amount to clear evidence of war crimes, notably the intentional killing of a number of civilians. But Owen, importantly, is also publicly saying what he didn't see right? What he didn't see. And that matters. Now, this is a tweet by Peter Tatchell, who also attended the screening myself and Owen 
did. So he tweeted this. I've seen uncensored body cam footage by Hamas terrorists who massacred civilians on the 7th of October. They murdered children, beheaded victims, and burned people alive in their homes and cars. They spewed anti-Semitism and rejoiced at killing Jews. Hamas equals ISIS. So Hamas equals ISIS is very much this line that Israel have been pushing. In fact, um, sort of earlier in, or back in October, I remember having sort of YouTube ads popping up in between videos I was watching, which were which were literally just saying Hamas equals ISIS, paid for by the Israeli government, right? Um, now, as to those claims, is Peter Tatchell lying? Is he lying about what he saw? And if I'm honest, I don't know, right? The film contained horrific images of dead children, but I don't remember seeing children being murdered. You know, so y you don't know how they died. I'm sure, you know, I, I, I'm not subscribing to this position where, you know, the majority of people who, who died were killed by the IDF trying to kill sort of um, Hamas people. You know, I don't know. I don't know what happened. The film also contained lots of images of burnt dead bodies in cars. But I don't remember ever seeing how those cars were set on fire. Now, this is plausibly a situation where that, that could have been, um, you know, IDF fire. They're trying to take out Hamas. They end up taking out civilians. It could also be the case, actually, that many of the burnt people we saw in cars were Hamas. We know that Israel initially said 1,400 people um, had died that, uh, that were Israelis. They then pushed that down to 1,200 because 200 of them were, were Hamas fighters who were so burnt they couldn't recognize them. So this is to say it's unclear what happened. Obviously, it's in the film that war crimes were committed by Hamas or related fighters who had crossed the fence. They did intentionally kill many civilians, right? It, it, it is clearly a war crime and an atrocity. But we need to be precise, especially when you've got lots of people going out and saying what they've seen in this film, right? I should say, also, we did see one house um, being set on fire, but I don't remember whether we could see anyone in it. And this is precisely the problem with this film, right? All of this evidence should be handed over to a select few independent media organizations who can actually contextualize and verify it, right? It shouldn't just be a 43-minute montage selected by the IDF, one part of, of the conflict, one army in the conflict. Now, of course, that doesn't mean showing it all publicly, which would be traumatic for the families as well as viewers, but it does mean giving it to a select few journalists who can take time and care to assess the facts about October the 7th. Not the IDF preparing a selection to show to journalists who don't have the opportunity to go back to reference anything. As you can see here, I'm expressing a lot of uncertainty. I don't think I saw that. I do think I saw this, but I'm not sure because I saw it for 43 minutes. You're not allowed to return to it. The problem with these screenings was put well by Elliot Higgins. So he started the open source intelligence organization Bellingcat. So they deal a lot with, you know, working out what information is true, what footage is accurate, what can be gleaned or inferred from footage. And in response to Owen's video, he tweeted this, traumatic imagery can have that effect on you. I've seen videos in the past where I have memories of seeing things that weren't in the video because the imagery was so traumatic. But I at least get the opportunity to rewatch and check what I've seen to be sure. He also tweeted this. That's one of the problems with these showings like Owen attended. You only get one chance to see it, so people can go away with false recollections caused by the trauma of witnessing the imagery. So when discussing this, I think it's important that incorrect reporting on the context of the video, on the contents of the video, could be a trauma response more than a deliberate attempt to mislead. We also see the same effect with people who personally witness traumatic events, which is why witness statements aren't always reliable and require corroboration with other sources whenever possible. Now, you might wonder why the Israelis want to curate a situation where false memories are likely and where the truth and event is difficult to ascertain, right? So they seem to have intentionally created this sort of trauma environment where it is very difficult to remember what happened and what didn't happen because it is an emotionally stressful situation, right? I think they're very aware of that, and I don't think it's accidental. I don't think it's accidental that they wanted to put all these influences in a room, show them a horrific film, not let them see it again, which means that no one's quite sure what they've seen, but they know it was really bad, right? It's also important to note this stuff does matter. So the US Congress is currently debating whether aid to Israel should be conditional, so whether it should be conditional on how the Israelis treat the Palestinians, for example. Now, in the run-up to that vote, Israeli pressure groups have shown the IDF film to Congress people, and at least one senator has been 
persuaded. So Cortez Masto um, is a senator for the Democratic Party. She said, I just left a screening of footage on Hamas's horrific terrorist attack on Israel from October the 7th. This violence is unconscionable. Congress needs to come together quickly to ensure Israel has the military funding they need to defeat Hamas. Right, so I showed you before the idea of sort of explaining they're showing people this video to shore up support for their war on Gaza. They've shown it to journalists like Douglas Murray who go out and say, God, it's worse than the Nazis. We really need to let Israel, you know, destroy Hamas. And if they destroy Gaza in the process, so be it. You've got senators saying they are literally um, the, the reason they they think everyone should vote for more military funding to to Israel is because they've seen this terrible video, right? So this matters. It has consequences, and this all means I think it's pretty valuable that Owen Jones has put together his very detailed and considered response to the idea to the IDF film. Others though disagree. Robert Colville is a Sunday Times columnist who co-wrote the 2019 Tory manifesto. Now, he responded this, Exciting new principle of criminal justice that crimes only happen when they are filmed live and the footage is shown to Owen Jones. Now, that is so dishonest. As I say, so many times in Owen Jones's response film, he says, just because we didn't see it in this film doesn't mean it didn't happen. But we have this circular problem whereby if you say, you know, people make up a what, or people put forward a claim about Hamas. I don't want to say make up. People put forward a claim about what Hamas has done. Then people say, well, where's the evidence? They say they literally filmed it and showed it to journalists. And then Owen's saying, well, it wasn't in the film that they showed to journalists. And they're saying, well, that doesn't mean it didn't happen. Yes, it doesn't mean it didn't happen, but it also means that other people can't say, well, of course it happened because it was they, they filmed it and showed it to journalists, right? So what Owen is doing is responsible. Robert Colville is completely misrepresenting what he did. Zach Goldsmith, you might remember, former Tory minister, he tweeted this. I saw the video. I tried but couldn't find words to describe the sheer depravity. After I suggested some of the people denying or excusing it should be invited to a viewing. No human being could possibly fail to be shaken by the scenes of brutality, or so I thought. Then Owen Jones came along. His impulse while watching that indescribably distressing Hamas footage was to sit there scribbling notes and looking for opportunities to nitpick, minimize, and obfuscate. Now, I was sitting next to Owen. He wasn't actually scribbling notes. Afterwards, we both said, we wish we we had you know, taken a notebook and, and, and scribbled more notes, right? But this seems to be uh, a senior politician trying to shame a journalist for doing journalism, right? Why were you there scribbling notes? Well, I thought this was supposed to be uh, for journalists to learn about what actually happened, yet you don't want them to take notes. You want them to just sort of absorb the emotional response that the IDF want you to have so that then you can push that out to your followers. I mean, that's what the IDF want. I don't think it's what anyone responsible should want. He also said at the bottom of the tweet, it is shocking that a respected British broadsheet continues to employ him. So obviously he's trying to get Owen Jones sacked there. Julia Hartley Brewer went the furthest. She screenshotted an article by Owen about the 2016 Pulse nightclub massacre and said this, can anyone help? Is this Owen Jones by any chance related to the one who's busy downplaying the horror of the massacre of 1,200 Israelis by his favorite terrorist group asking for a friend? So she's calling another journalist or saying another journalist, has Hamas as their favorite terrorist group because they dared to make a video where they said that clearly Hamas committed war crimes and they were shown in that video. But also I think it's important for the general public to know what is and isn't in that video because we're seeing so many journalists like Douglas Murray sort of say, oh, it had this, it had that, it's worse than the Nazis. You couldn't possibly imagine how bad it is, right? I think it's much more responsible to say what's actually in it. Julia Hartley-Brewer also spoke about Owen's video on Talk TV with, you guessed it, Douglas Murray. Are they saying that the Israelis made it up? Yeah. Are they saying that this is untrue? Are they saying that the testimony of people, including, by the way, leftists like them in the South who were living in the kibbutzim that were mainly leftist communities, by the way, so, so much for solidarity if it's yeah. Jews, um, but uh, are they saying that these people made it up? Are they saying that the bodies I've seen in the morgues are uh, fake? Are they saying that the, 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 by the way, they're lucky that they haven't seen more of the footage. I've seen plenty more of the footage of what happened that day. And there, there are cutaways in the videos, partly to spare uh, the journalists who, who have viewed them, but I can assure you, having seen it myself, it's no easy footage. I've seen plenty of conflict, and uh, the manner in which Hamas carried out these attacks, as well as the brutality of it, is something 
you don't need to review like you're reading, you're reviewing the latest Marvel film. Yeah. Um, but I'd like to know what these people are actually saying, because I'll tell you what I think they're doing. I think they're carrying out Holocaust denial in real time. Holocaust denial in real time. Now, given this was Douglas Murray talking, to be honest, I'm relieved. I assumed he would accuse Owen Jones of being worse than a Holocaust denier. He does, after all, quite like downplaying the crimes of the Nazis. Oh, the Nazis, at least they felt bad about it. Hamas are celebrating this. That's the line he's been pushing out for weeks. To respond to his precise claims, though, because he does refer to me elsewhere in that clip, what we are saying is actually quite simple. It's not that atrocities didn't occur on October the 7th. They clearly did. They were horrific. It's actually more simple than that. We believe that where evidence of war crimes exists, it should be handed to journalists or independent investigators, not selectively packaged by one side in a conflict and shown to credulous pundits on cinema screens. Right? That's not a good way of doing things. That's not a good way of getting to the truth. You also note Murray shifted the goalposts somewhat there. If Owen doesn't think the IDF screening shows Hamas are worse than the Nazis, well, he should see the other exclusive footage I've seen, which is even worse, right? It's all so unfalsifiable. I've seen, a, I've seen this, this footage that shows they're worse than the Nazis. Someone else says what's actually in the footage. Well, I've seen different, worse footage, right? How about where evidence exists, it should be made available to people with an ounce of independence, right? not to people who want to go on talk TV, talk to Julia Hartley Brewer, and basically do propaganda for the Israeli military. This is all basic stuff. It shouldn't be controversial. Every time I see Douglas Murray, I'm reminded what a, what a uniquely a pernicious influence he is on, on sort of British public life. And, and that was a, a shining example of it. Um, the issue here is, it's not just about journalism. If you're a journalist, then what you should be doing is questioning and interrogating sources and trying to understand what you're being shown and why you're being shown it and where it's coming from. That is, I thought, one of the accepted things that you do as a journalist. You don't just take on trust what you're being told or what you've seen or what, what you've heard. You look for multiple sources. You attempt to understand the context in which the news, the footage, uh, the, the source is telling you something. It seems elementary. But it's even more than that. It's like there's a basic thing in democracy. I always thought that to have a functioning democracy, you need to have some sense that what you're being told can be and often should be open to question, interrogation, understanding. And, and that's not to take away from the horrors that you and I and other people have seen and that Hamas did definitely commit because we've seen these things now and you've seen them. What it means is to understand that you, as a responsible citizen, have a notion that because somebody's an authority, you, as somebody who is taking part in this, what we think of as a democracy, are going to respond to that authority by having the option to criticize, to question, to understand what a source is, to understand why something is being said, and to not simply take something on trust as the absolute uh, definitive statement of, of what has occurred. Now, that just seems to be elementary, right? You don't have a properly functioning democracy if you do not have the option to criticise, or not even to criticise, to raise questions, describe precisely what was happening. I don't think Owen actually raised the criticism as such. He simply says, this was shown, this was not shown. It's something that's, you know, it's, it's a fundamental part of what life in a democracy should be like. So it's not just about journalism. That once you get to a situation where, because this is presented, and because this is the permissible interpretation of it, and this is what you're being shown, and that is uh, the entirety of the discussion that we can have, it damages the way that we're allowed to talk about what's happening in the world, not just because, as a journalist, Owen is now being told that apparently he can't do that job. It's the rest of us that also suffer from that experience. So I find this very unsettling, what's taking place around the way that Owen is being treated here. That there's something worse than just, it's another day of having a go at Owen Jones on Twitter. There's something quite insidious underneath this if you start saying that it is not permissible to describe precisely, to understand a source, to understand what you're being shown. It's very, very unsettling, I think. The thing that always strikes me here is how concerned that Israel and sort of its outriders are to specifically say, Hamas aren't just bad. That, you know, they aren't just an organization that committed atrocities and killed civilians, right? They are ISIS. They are the Nazis. And I, I think the reason they want to do that is quite specific because, you know, we have conflicts everywhere involve some really horrific actions towards civilians, right? Wars does grim stuff to people. And especially long-term occupation, colonial situations mean that people 
get pretty gruesome on both sides. You know, it's it's awful. It's appalling, right? It, it shouldn't be normalized, but it shouldn't also be exceptionalized because this happens in situations like that, right? That's why we want to get out of situations where you have one people colonizing another people because you will get hatred and violence and and then you know responses like we're seeing from Israel, right? But the reason they want to say it's ISIS and the Nazis is because it being bad isn't enough. Because we have lots of experiences of, 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 of non-state actors doing bad stuff. And then ultimately, there's some agreement between the government and the non-state actor and there's some sort of peace accord. Not many wars in the modern age end in total defeat of one side. But we do have these two recent historical examples, which is the Nazis, where, you know, the West, or not the West, because the Nazis were Western as well, sorry, the, the Allies fought until the end, fought until the Nazis were completely destroyed. Obviously, they killed a shed load of people in, in the process, sort of actions such as Dresden. That's debated whether it was necessary by sort of scholars of, of human rights. But no one really argues, oh, they should have come to a, a peace deal with, with, with the Nazis and made some compromises. And the same thing is said about ISIS. And ISIS, you know, they burned people, you know, ISIS were pretty much a death cult, right? Hamas aren't. And those are two situations where pretty much everyone agrees that, oh yeah, actually negotiating with the Nazis or ISIS wouldn't have been a good idea. And that's why the Israelis and their outrisers are so obsessed with saying Hamas aren't just bad. They are the same as these two examples where everyone agrees that a, a deadly war was required to completely destroy them and not negotiate. You know, they, they, It's not enough for us to think, oh, Hamas are a bit like the IRA or Hamas are a bit like the Mau Mau in, in Kenya or Hamas are a, you know, a bit like various other non-state actors who killed a lot of civilians, right? We, we have to see them as the instantiation of pure evil because that is what justifies a total war against the people of Gaza. And that's why I do think the specifics matter because people keep saying, well, well if you're saying they... If you're saying that they they killed civilians anyway, then why are you why are you concerned about these details? You know, does it really matter if they've done something bad? Just accept that. It's like, well, because I, I, it does matter. I think whether or not Hamas are ISIS or the Nazis, right? And if we accept that they are, which they aren't, by the way, then that is what justifies you know the sort of total war, the total destruction, which Israel is um, you know condemning Gaza to. I mean, what do you make of that? The Israeli ambassador to the UK used the example of the bombing of Dresden. It's like, well, this is what happens if you're against this force, which is the unimaginable total evil, uh, like the Nazis. So, so that, that that's sort of that's the direct comparison that gets made. I mean, it's not the only time that you've seen this happening, of course, but I think your explanation of some of the logic there, I think, is is quite correct. It, it doesn't it doesn't change the the colonial situation you've described, that once you have a situation where a whole bunch of people are oppressed in a pretty violent and unpleasant way, and that is what happens under forms of colonial domination, then you do get violence in the other direction. We've seen this over and over again throughout history. And I think it's entirely correct for you to say that this is why you don't want those situations to be created, that you look for past territory, you look for root territory, and that's what is precisely what is not happening at this point in time uh, in Gaza. James, let's wrap up there. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. I'm glad we got your microphone sorted out in the end. Yes, yes. Much better like this, I think. And thank you, everyone, for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow. Um, as I say, Barnaby will be hosting. That'll be from 6pm for now. You've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.